It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 489 of Accelerate, where I hold in depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Now, if you like this show, it'd really help us if you took a moment, subscribed, left a review for us. We want to know what we can do to help this make an even better and more valuable experience for you. So please take a second when you get a chance, subscribe to the show, leave a review. Really appreciate it. So joining me on the show today is Mark Cox. He's the managing partner of In the Funnel. It's a sales consulting firm based in Toronto. Mark has done a lot of work to identify the key personality traits that make up the most successful salespeople. And we're going to have a conversation about that today. Mark Cox, welcome to Accelerate. Thanks very much, Andy. Appreciate you having me here. Oh, my pleasure. So um, where are you joining us from today? I'm in Toronto, Canada. Toronto, Canada. Are you feverishly well, watching, watching, supporting the Maple Leafs in the uh, NHL playoffs? Andy, they wouldn't let me live here unless I did do that. You may not understand Canada and Toronto, but everybody supports the Leafs. Everybody supports the Leafs. And we had a good game last night. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's talking about the great young squad that the, the Leafs have. Well, boy, they certainly came through against those uh, those big experienced capitals. So we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, as we record this, I think it's a what two one lead for the Leafs. So that, that's right. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, we're jump right into it here. So, question I ask a lot of my guests. Gonna ask because it's it's one that well, I'm always interested in the variety of answers we get. So the, this is you know in your mind, right? Today, here we are, 2017. What's what's the single biggest challenge facing sales professionals today? Um, this well, first of all, it's a very tough job. I think that's the, the the single biggest challenge facing sales professionals today. You know, at the core, Andy, what we try and do is is extract money out of a third party company that had never planned to spend that money on something they perhaps don't even know they need, and we're trying to get them to do it in our time frame, not theirs. So, so if you're at the ten thousand square foot level and you look at you know the business of professional B two B selling. That's a pretty tough thing to do. And, and I think if you're going to be good at it, you need a lot of strategy, process, and discipline. And you've got to be great at the things you can control. Well, so has that changed? Is it harder? I, I think it's getting um, more and more difficult, pr- probably for two reasons. Um, number one, I, I think there's been some fairly poor B2B sales over the last 20 to 30 years. And what that does is it makes the entire business community, they, they have either a dated view of what the salesperson's going to do when they come and chat with them, um, or they see them as adding very little value uh, in terms of the interaction. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's some old stereotypes out there, and maybe old Gil from The Simpsons is a pretty good example of one, where I, I, I think, frankly, I think pop culture and, and the community at large uh, probably doesn't have the respect for the profession that it deserves. And I, I think there's a reason for that we can talk about, but I, I think that's why it's tough today. Well, I mean, you're sort of, sort of having both sides of the coin there. You're saying on one hand, it's got a reputation it doesn't deserve, but you think there are good reasons for it. I mean, and I think this is sort of a conundrum that a lot of people face is, is when they talk about sales is that 
yeah, on one hand, they seem unfairly maligned for behaviors that you know just a, a very small fraction of sales professionals exhibit. Uh, yeah, on the other hand, we, you know, we sort of acknowledge that maybe some of those exist on a more broad scale than than we like to admit. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I think you make a fair point. So, so I'll pick one component of professional sales, and let's call it demand generation or smart prospecting or cold calling, whatever you'd like to call it. I, I think that particular task has been done very, very poorly for 20 years. So, you know, many business professionals today, when they pick up the phone and it's somebody doing demand generation for a firm on the other end of the phone, they they – uh, their automatic reaction is flight. Right. So, you know, they want to get off the call because they've had so many of these that have been done very poorly. You know, and maybe some of those came from Bangalore or Shanghai. But, um, but, but that's a good example where it's tougher for you or I to do it today because, you know, the person we're calling has perhaps received 100 bad cold calls in the last 10 years. Or maybe a hundred in the last ninety days. I mean, it, it could be. Yeah, it could be. I mean, the same thing that goes for phone calls certainly can go for emails as well. As you know, we've unleashed with the technology, we've unleashed uh, the ability to reach out and touch more people more frequently. But there's still a lot of concerns across the board, and I have them. I I subscribe to to mailing lists just for the purpose of I've got an email address I use that that just so I can look at the emails that come from salespeople, right. and. It seems like that that is an area where we have a lot of room for improvement in terms of that initial contact we make with with a customer. Well, I, I absolutely agree. And then let, let's take it to some of the other things that salespeople need to be good at. So face-to-face meetings, you know, whether you call it the first one, the approach call, or, or other face-to-face meetings. In person or virtual, counting virtually as well? No, in- no, I'm, a- I'm actually now speaking in person. In person, okay. In person. And, and I think today, you know, with the, the, uh, a lot of the times when we get engaged by clients, we'll chat with folks about their game plan for the meeting with the new prospect. So let's say somebody's done s- some sales development work, we found an interested party. Maybe there's been a short telephone call to, you know, qualify the discussion and then initiate an approach call. Oftentimes, you'll have a salesperson leaving the building, going to a face-to-face uh, sales meeting with a prospect for the first time, but they have no plan for the meeting. And so you'll say, "Hey, what's the objective of the call, and what are you going to try and do?" And they'll say, "Well, I'm going to go and see where they're at." <laughs> and and we go, "Okay." And then they'll come back after the meeting, Andy, and we'll say, hey, how did the sales call go? And they'll go, it was fantastic. <laughs> Great meeting. Why? He's a really nice guy, and his son plays you know, AAA hockey with my son. They're in the same league. And you say, well, that's great. We built rapport, and maybe there's a bit of a connection here, but do they have a business problem we can solve for? Well, I didn't quite get to that. Or do we understand what we're going to do as a potential next step? Well, I, I didn't quite get to that either. So, so I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity here to improve almost every stage of the sales process, given what takes place out there in the market today. And, and Andy, our belief for, for a lot of this is we, we don't believe that most salespeople today, we don't think they see it as a profession. Yeah, because a profession means you've had some training, you've had some coaching, and it's prolonged and continual. The training. The training, the coaching, you're using some methodology. 
you know, we we end up doing a number of speaking engagements in any given year. And oftentimes, there'll be rooms anywhere from, you know, 80 to 130 people in the room, uh, usually with a sales, a sales-related topic or for business owners, medium and small business size, uh, owners. And the question will first first question we'll typically ask is how many folks in here have some responsibility for generating revenue for the business they're a part of? And inevitably we'll see 90% of the hands go up. Then we'll say, well, how many folks in the room are actually responsible for managing other salespeople as part of your company? And and you know, a few hands will mm-hmm. drop, but maybe there's 60, 70. Then we're gonna ask how many folks have actually been through any formal sales training in the last 10 to 15 years? Now this drops down to about 10% of the hands in the room. And then we'll ask the rest of the room, okay, if you've never been through sales training and yet your your career is professional B2B sales, who's actually read a book on professional sales, B2B, you know, cover to cover? And same thing, Andy, we'll get somewhere between 10 and 15% of the room keep their hands up. And, and at the core, I think that's part of the problem. I think folks end up in sales and there's a lot, lots of adrenaline, adrenaline and enthusiasm, but there's not always, you know, a process, a methodology, a little bit of strategy thinking before we do. I think that's where the opportunity for, for growth exists. Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, so what you're saying is, is let's sort of go back a couple of steps, is that we can't really be considered or consider ourselves a profession. In right. S- in the sense that you know, doctors, lawyers, and others that may either do graduate education or have some sort of certification. I mean, is that really what you think ultimately it's going to come down to? Is that for this to become a recognized profession that there needs to be, uh, I hate to use the word, but you know, more regulation around it? I'm, I think regulation may, might be the wrong word, but well, I don't I mean, think, I'm think certification. About lic- licensing and certifications. You know, yeah. it's, it's a regulatory process, right? I mean, is, is that where you think it has to head? I, I'm, I'm thinking it has to head towards some level of professional training and maybe consistent training. So, you know, if we look at, and, and there's a couple of books that, that references quite well out there today. Jason Jordan has got one called uh, Crack, Cracking the, the Sales, sales Management Code, yeah. right? And that's right. Good for you. And, you know, in it, he, he uh, advises that, you know, fundamentally, there's no standard set of operating guidelines for B2B sales teams out there today. The same way there's operating guidelines for the finance group or for the marketing group or even for the manufacturing business discipline. So he says, well, listen, as a profession, sales has really lagged behind its peer groups in terms of performance because of it. There's no standard set of operating guidelines and KPIs. I, I think he's on the right path. And there's there's another reference point. I, I'm gonna I may get the date wrong on this one, but I think it's the July 2012 issue of Harvard Business Review, where they had a, a full issue dedicated to sales, mm-hmm. to professional sales. Sure. And in it they talked about how um, at the core with 462 colleges or universities at that time in the U.S. that offered a graduate degree in business or um, an MBA, over 80% of them didn't offer a single course on B2B selling. And in fact, only 3% of them, 16% of them out of the 462 offered a graduate degree or an MBA in sales. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so, 
virtually non-existent at the graduate level. There's increasing numbers at the undergraduate level, at least in the U.S. Yeah, I, I'm, we're still not seeing it as much, you know, in, in MBA programs uh, up, in, up here in Canada, frankly, um, Andy. So we ask this question, you know, quite often in our speaking engagements. How many folks here have got an MBA? The hands all go up. How many folks actually took a dedicated, a course dedicated to sales as part of your 26 course course load when you did your MBA? And, and the vast majority of them, there's no hands at all. Sure. So sales, sales was kind of treated as a, as a chapter in the marketing textbook or as, you know, talking about managing a VAR. But, but really, without that standard set of um, operating guidelines and an approach, and when it's not taught at the college or university level, I think that's what's resulted in this bit of a wild west in terms of professional B2B selling. And I think that's why it has actually made it so difficult for all of us doing it now, because I, I do think there is still a number of people out there doing this not particularly well. Right. I mean, yes, I, mean, I think we can all acknowledge that the room for improvement across the, across the board. I, before I you know, leave from the subject, because I, I think it's one that, that I think a lot of people have, have a level of interest in, is, mm-hmm. is you know, maybe some sort of formal certification, you know, increased emphasis in the formal education process at the college level about sales. Because, you know, many, 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 many universities across the United States, certainly, you know, large public institutions all have undergraduate business majors. Many of the private schools do as well. Is, yeah, if kids can come out with a sales degree, if you will, uh, and as well as some sort of ongoing professional certification. To me, it seems like that's that's an area we sort of have to go after, and sort of wondering what the, you know, in your mind, sort of what the trigger will be that will get, because really corporations, I think, are the ones that are going to have to go to the major universities, and because they provide a lot of financial support for them anyway, and say, look, this is really this is the type of training we need to see coming out of the school. Hmm. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. What will be the trigger for it? Um, admittedly, I, I don't think I have an answer for that one, Andy. I, I think what what we're seeing, though, I think one encouraging thing that we're we're coming across, at least within um, our sphere of influence, where we're seeing um, incubators or these organizations that focus on new technology startups and trying to get new ideas out into the marketplace. And, and there's mentor programs in place for these mm-hmm. new ideas and these, these guys trying to do the startups. Right. They have a real appetite for talk, for coaching these folks on, on sales. So those, um, we have a number of them in Canada, there's a number of, lots and lots of them in the US. When we reach out to those folks about what we do, they have a real interest in, in exposing us to their base. And so I, I think that's a bit of a positive sign because many of the mentors in those programs, they understand the importance of you know the basic financial equation. The most important one is revenue, and that's what we do. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, but it seems, yeah, it seems interesting, right? I mean, you have an MBA and you train, you know, all these these high level functions, and the one that's missing is revenue. <laughs> which, is it, isn't it amazing? Which which uh, seems like uh, that seems like a obvious hole in your curriculum right there is unless somehow you think that marketing is responsible for revenue but you know we could we could have a a long discussion about that right all right so uh, 
sort of segueing a little bit is is one of the things I wanted to chat with you about is you had, you had written an article about what you considered the five key traits of a successful salesperson and and I wanted to go through that as sort of a precursor or something else we'll talk about so mm-hmm. uh, the traits you had resilience natural curiosity discipline strategic thinking resourcefulness so it's starting with resilience I mean is this really something that can be developed or is this an inherent trait oh great question um I think it's something that can be developed. So how do you so, how do you do that? How do you work with reps to develop resilience? You know what you I, I think you and I'm going to use this word in quotations. You properly manage them. So I think many many sales leaders today are pretty good at inspection, but they're not very good at actual coaching and motivation, which are the two other things you need to be good at to run a sales organization. Mm-hmm. So so I think. You can, you can coach a junior person who's, who's having a tough time. You can coach them to be resilient. So where they've just got off the phone, they've had, uh, let's, let's take this sales development role in demand generation. They've had nine or 10 terrible calls in a row and they're feeling a little bit down. You sit down and chat with them and you can give them a little bit of perspective that will help them make the next call. And so they'll learn over time that, you know, perhaps you know, the quote that it is a bit of a numbers game does, does actually resonate. Or when you're doing demand generation, some people will support you, some people won't. So what? Just move on. And so I think that is, you know, that is something I think it can be taught and it can be learned. Because I think if you took a sales development rep and assessed, you know, uh, how they felt about what they were doing the first 90 days on the job and and the lack of perspective and context they had for their overall job, lots of initial reaction, uh, rejection. And you took that same rep and had, you know, kind of a same assessment a year later. I think you will find if they've been properly coached, they do have context and that will lead to resilience. They can make the next call. They don't get offended with one call that's got offside. They understand that you're going to win some deals and you're going to lose some deals but you just keep moving forward. And so I do think actually you can develop that over time. But I, I do think you need inherent optimism in somebody when they're in a, a sales profession. So, so I think it's much more difficult to be resilient if you're naturally pessimistic. And how do you, how do you screen for optimism and pessimism? Oh, another great question. We're full of them here. This is why yeah, you come boy, on the show. You've done, you've done this before. Um, you know, that's a very good question, Andy. You know, I like to try and stay away from things like, well, when you've had a, a couple of interviews with someone, you're going to have a gut feel for things. I hate to default to that. But but I think the way they present, um, uh, one of the things we like to do in interviews is we ask people to drive through their CV and tell us about um, the roles they've had, what they were hired to do, and what stands out as major accomplishments for them during those jobs. Mm-hmm. We also ask them to tell us about the tougher parts of some of those jobs. And um, when people describe what's taken place in the past, uh, their their natural tendency tends to come out. So if they if they position, hey, you know, it was a tough role, but they they, they default to I had some great learning, work with some terrific people. You know, I actually learned how to manage a sales process in that type of job. Um, 
we find that it comes out in in when they're doing when we do a uh, top grading interview that um, their view on what's taking place in their career in the past actually helps us determine whether they're optimistic or pessimistic. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, and <laughs> you bring up interviewing. It calls to mind the fact that oh, about two weeks before we we conducted this interview here is is there's this article in the New York Times written by a professor from Yale who studies job interviewing. And mm-hmm. the, t- the title of the article was The Utter Uselessness of Job Interviews. Wow. And, what does he suggest we do instead? Well, it was her. And, and her, her finding and the finding of her colleagues with her was that what they find in job interviews is that the judgment of the interviews interviewers excuse me, um, added nothing of relevance to the process. And they were, they were studying a lot using, uh, I think, admissions interviews to colleges as, as one, of the, one of the sort of the proxies for job interviews in mm-hmm. one of their studies. And they found that you know, people are actually better able to predict uh, future performance of people they never met based on data points they've been provided rather than when they interviewed them. <laughs> so it was it was it was really interesting. You know, it's sort of the saying, okay, well, you know, are we well, I guess sort of the key sort of psychological insight is that is that we have no problem taking <laughs> taking the information we hear from inter- from candidates and sort of aligning it with, you know, our own narrative, right? Our own biases and so on. So as she said, you know, people can't help seeing signals even a noise. Um well, you know what, Andy, it brings up a great point, but, but given, um, given where we are, we, we, and this might be of interest to the listeners too, we like the methodology provided by Jeff Smart and Randy Street and who. And, and so I, I'm not sure what this professor, what her sample base was, but I actually agree with her that, you know, uh, the average sales interview today, where someone doesn't have a process and they go through meeting two and three different, you know, members of the executive team, and those folks ask the same questions and don't have a formal process or methodology, I do agree that process is broken. And, and at the end, the core question they end up answering is, do I like this person? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's always the case. But one of the things that this, uh, in this article, the, uh, the researcher and the professor showed out, or mm-hmm. spells out, is that actually one way to become, uh, develop a process that's more highly predictive of, of future performance is to ensure that everybody is asking the exact same questions. Right. I, I, so I which, would... which, is, which is different, right? Because right now, in most interview processes, and I'm not judging the merits one way or another of this because it's... Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's really a complex topic, right? Yeah. Is is you know whether or not you know by letting people basically freelance as we do, as you said, we bring people in, they talk to members of the executive staff, they you know everybody has their own way of doing it, right? I've well, I've got my own questions. I always ask. Someone will say, "Is maybe you're actually, I said, decreasing the value of those interviews?" Well, and again, Jeff Smart and Randy Street would say, "Don't let them freelance." And so when we work with our clients, it isn't, we don't let them freelance. So we'd like to establish a process for everybody who's going to be meeting the individual. There is a process. And so the approach I'm going to take may be slightly different from what we're going to ask you to do, depending upon what stage of the process the candidate is in. Okay. And, and, and so, for example, we might have a telephone screening interview, but then when we bring them in, there might be two of us for a formal top grading interview. 
But for the third interview, we may may have two other members of the executive team see the individual come back. And that individual, it's not going to be just a top grading interview. The individual is actually going to run through what they would do in their first 90 days in the role. So they'd actually share their view of their onboarding plan. And then we'd get everybody in a room potentially after these interviews, talk about what we liked and didn't. Maybe there's green flags and red flags. And then we'd decide there's two or three things we really want to push on here. And there might be another interview with one of the members of the team. Again, not just a top grading interview, but pushing on these areas of concern. So they're trying to add a little bit more strategy and process to this to to improve the outcome. Uh, I have a story of a a client I worked with uh, years ago who, Mm -hmm. serial entrepreneur, very successful, had really smart people working for him. And I was working with him on his third company and, or consulting with him on his third company. But for him, it was, it was really simple. He started with somebody's GPA. And this is sort of supports what this professor from Yale was talking about, is that, that you know, if you just understood the, the metrics about somebody, the numbers, that they found that the people that actually knew the, the metrics but never didn't meet the people in person, the candidate in person, actually predicted future performance better. And in this case, the this, this CEO, it was just all about the college GPA. And he yeah, found so, that he found that you know there's basically again it seemed very black and white, but he was extremely successful in terms of you know at least I could vouch for the people that on that company. By and large, had really smart people, very capable people, and it's not that he didn't ask other questions, but he basically made up his mind almost solely on the basis of that. So, and and I'd be interested to hear the perspective, Andy. So, how does looking at somebody's GPA tell me anything about uh, their humility? So, so I, well, you know, and, and this may well, end up becoming a personal, pre- uh, personal well, preference that we have for certain companies. But if we're going to bring somebody into a professional B2B sales organization, I actually want somebody who's, who's got enough humility to understand that they're going to learn and develop and, and personal development is going to require some discomfort over time. And my view is if somebody doesn't have a reasonable degree of humility, they're not going to go through that process. They're not going to tough it out. Well, question not, is, though, so can, can you assess that through an interview? I mean, now there are assessment tools you can use that maybe, you know, start peeling back some of the the layers of the onion. But, you know, someone in an in a interview situation, aren't they inherently selling on stage, aware of, of what the agenda is? Can you really gauge? I, th- I think you can. What if I asked you the question right now? If you If I was interviewing you, I'd say, hey, Andy. Um, what's the next thing you need to learn? How you approach that that um, response may tell me a little bit of something about your degree of humility. <laughs> what is the next thing you need to learn, Andy? Whatever is the next interview I have on my show. I've I've you know interviewed oh, 500, okay. 500, 500 people over the last year. I you don't think I do that out of the sake of curiosity? Of course I do. So yeah, I'm I'm. I freely admit I, I do this podcast in part of selfish motivations because I get to learn a lot. Oh, great. From talking to smart people like you. So, yeah, it's this it's, it's a really interesting topic, and we sort of veered off what we were going to talk about. I think it's still valuable for people listening is, is you know, what is what is your process? We started talking about the five traits that, that you have to have in salespeople, and we got through the first one, a resilience. But, you know, you have natural curiosity, which you know, in this article you – 
you know, not alone in your your view that that there's a lack of curiosity general and sales professionals to learn more to this point you just made. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to me, that's that's how do we change that? To me, that's one of the really big things in sales that we need to work on. And I, I'm sure it's not only the a problem that you know managers see in sales in sales professionals, but it's one where if we are to view it as a profession where you need to keep up you know, and reinforce your learning and keep up a certain level of education about your customers, your products, you know, the markets you sell in and so on, mm-hmm. then this curiosity is really important. I c- completely agree. I think the natural curiosity, again, uh, leads to, you know, it becomes a bit of a gauge for their opportunity to develop business acumen. And, and so... Um, you know, I, I had a very interesting call, uh, coaching call with a sales rep with a company we work with currently, and they came out of the call and, and they understood that a good portion of the call was dedicated to really trying to understand the client's business and how they compete and win in their marketplace and understanding what's happening with that business before driving down specifically, you know, to the business problem that our solution solves for. So mm-hmm. there was a, a fair amount of discussion about, tell me about the business, where it's going, how you compete and win and all that kind of good stuff. And this individual um, came out of the call and it, it was an epiphany for me, Andy. I, I hadn't had this happen so far. The, the individual literally said, you know, I really enjoyed the first part of that sales discussion, but I don't think I'm enabled to, to, um, to actually lead that kind of line of questioning about doing a size up on their business. So, so I think they caught that it was an important part of the process. They enjoyed that part of, you know, the sales meeting with the client, but they just didn't have the tool set for doing a basic size up on a business and didn't understand how we got to the line of questioning we went to. So, you know, um, I think this natural curiosity, I think it is uh, something you can teach someone. So, you know, it's almost like doing a little bit of a mini MBA to, to help folks do a quick size up on somebody else's business. But, but again, if, if they want to learn it, sure. You know, vers- versus if somebody wants to come in and just start talking about, you know, ask the basic questions that per- lead to, do you need our solution or not? I, I think that's a, a far less interesting meeting for both, both sides of the table. Well, I think that, that in general, that sort of behavior you just talked about in terms of being so heavily heavily scripted, excuse me, is yeah. is something that really depresses and represses curiosity. Right. Right. And I've been talking about this more and more with people and on the show and otherwise and talks I give and so on is that is that the downside of a lot of the process we have that's sort of reinforced by the tools and the data we're getting is that you know becomes so rigid that I think where where reps learned to be curious in the past was going out and sort of trying to find their own style that really mm-hmm. worked best for them. And we seem to be having this little, this trend toward conformity in sales that, you know, if, if you're going to be, hey, I got to use this process, ask these questions, da-da-da-da-da, why be curious? It's all laid out there. I mean, it's you're removing the incentive for people to become curious because, hey, you know, we've got your playbook and everything you're supposed to say and every question you're supposed to ask in these situations and this scenario and that scenario. It, you know, why, why be curious? It's all laid out for you. And so I think that, that we have to look at that because I think it's, 
we are concerned about overall productivity and sales and how we're, as a profession, we don't seem to be making a lot of forward progress on an individual level is, you know, to me, it's like, you know, people have to sort of throw off the shackles a bit and really push themselves and, yeah, maybe not be a slave to the process, but use it as a guideline to say, yeah, I really have to create my own individual strengths here. Yeah, and, and, and I very much like the term guideline. So, so this concept of scripting, we've, we've never really been big on, and mostly because it's not something I would have ever wanted to do myself. Exactly. But I, I certainly, you know, would, would have always appreciated in the early days a guide that gave me some comfort that I can uh, listen intently when somebody else is speaking without being immediately concerned with trying to figure out the next question I'm going to ask. Right. So I, I have some comfort as perhaps a junior sales rep and, you know, in my first couple of years of doing sales calls that I, I can listen with intent. I can actively listen. And if I thought I might get caught or might not know where to take the conversation, I actually have a bit of a guide I can default to. Right. It's not right. a scripted question, but it's a guide. And, well, and, and going through this, by the way, while always making sure that the, the the discussion is adding some value to the person I'm speaking to or speaking with. It's right. probably a much better term. So so that they're getting they're interested, they're engaged, and and they're really doing the majority of the talking. Ideally, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the one of the things we don't think about one of the byproducts, and I I see this is is that the more scripted we we become as sellers. And right. so if, if you've got a, a buyer and they're looking for a solution for a specific issue they're trying to resolve or trying to improve upon and they do their research and they settle upon, hey, we're going to talk to these four companies that seem to have something that might fit. And if we all come in and we're all kind of scripted, right. what happens is the buyer starts becoming scripted as well. Because they're going to give you the same answers they gave to everybody else because it's the same questions thinking that's what you want to hear. But you're not peeling back <laughs> and the layer and saying, hey, how do we really dive deep here? How, and in the process, set yourself apart from the other, other three vendors that have been selling to them. They're content to be scripted. You know, how do you kick down that door and, and you know, through your questions, start demonstrating the insights that the, the customer needs to hear about their business? It's funny, Andy. One of the things we love um, kind of gauging the sales team on is we, we ask them after an interaction with a prospect, we say, you know, how many times did they actually take a pause and go, that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. That is what differentiates yourself. Yeah. So, so, you know, by the way, some of those can be template. Like, you know, if we're going in to talk to somebody about a group retirement plan or we're going in to talk to somebody about, you know, um, uh, a CRM solution for the wealth management industry, or even you know, collections and recovery solution for the Canadian banking industry. There are a bunch of questions that we could jot down in advance of that meeting that aren't exclusive toward us trying to fill out BATNA for you know for our sales process. Mm-hmm. Okay, who else makes decisions and what level of authority do they have? Blah 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 blah. There's there's a bunch of questions we can talk we can put down that we know we're going to ask in advance that might initiate an interesting conversation about the prospects business that will get them talking, and we love when they come back and say, well you know that's a really good question. Yeah, that's where we're going to differentiate ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Well, Mark, we're, we're running out of time here, Uh-oh. and we just barely touched the surface, so we'll have to have you come back again and, and have another conversation. And, uh, yeah, we'll get to the topic we originally were going to get to. So That's a good idea. Yeah. Well, listen, this, this, Andy, this, what a this, pleasure this. chatting with you, by the way. Great discussion. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you as well. So, tell people how they can find out more about you and what you do. Thank you. So, so our company is called In the Funnel Sales Consulting, and primarily we get engaged when revenue growth is stagnated for companies or the sales team's underperforming, or they're looking to, to build a new go-to-market plan for the business for the upcoming year. We're a group of sales coaches and consultants, and we're a little bit unique and different in our space because we, we actually focus on a process and a methodology for assessing someone's current state and then making recommendations to improve it. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to learn a little bit more, it's itfacademy.com. And ITF is in the funnel, itfacademy.com. And you're Mark Cox, so perfect. Well, again, Mark, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Andy. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. And friends, as always, thank you for spending this time with us today. Remember, come back and join me again tomorrow as talk to my next guest. Until then, if you get a second, go to iTunes, please. Subscribe to this podcast, Accelerate, leave a review. really want to hear from you about what we can do to make this, uh, continue to make this a valuable experience for you. Uh, so anyway, until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. 